Ladies and gentlemen, good evening and welcome to this pre-performance event for this evening's performance of the Mikado. Um, I thought it would be nice, perhaps, if we at least thought about this event being belonging to Richard Angus, who played the Mikado in this production from the very beginning, and for whom many of us, that entrance at the end of the opera is just one of the great moments on this stage. So I, I think we should all think about Richard Angus as we, as we talk. Welcome, anyway. Um, can I remind you, please, if you could turn off telephones, uh, pages, anything else that may, might make a strange obligato addition to our proceedings. Um, and if we need to leave, we make our way to one of the exits with the green men running very fast, where we'll be taken out of the building uh, by uh, staff from English National Opera. Um, no recording, please, no photographs, but we are recording it, and it will be there on the English National Opera website, um, probably from the day after tomorrow, should you wish to listen to the conversations we're going to have again. Um, the Mikado was born out of a crisis in the always rather touchy relationship that existed between Arthur Sullivan and William Schwenk Gilbert. Their previous opera, Princess Ida, was flagging at the box office. So Richard Doyle Cart, who'd put them under contract, announced that he needed a new work in six months' time, which was one of the obligations in the contract. Sullivan replied to Cart that it is impossible for me to do another piece of the character of all those, or the, of those already written by Gilbert and myself. Gilbert had already started work on a new libretto in which people fell in love against their wills after taking a magic lozenge, was surprised to hear that Sullivan wasn't particularly pleased. He wrote to Sullivan, asking him to reconsider, but the composer replied on the 2nd of April, 1884, that he had come to the end of my tether with the operas. I have been continually keeping down the music, he wrote, in order that not one syllable should be lost. I should like to set a story of human interest and probability where the humorous words would come in a humorous, not serious situation, and where if the situation was a tender or dramatic one, the words would be of a similar character. Well, you can imagine the kind of response that had from Sullivan, both men standing their own ground. But in the end, it was Gilbert who climbed down by agreeing to abandon the magic lozenge plot. What an opera we lost there. <laughs> On the 20th of May, 1884, Gilbert sent Sullivan a sketch for the plot to the Mikado. The opera tapped in, I suppose, to a growing fascination in Europe with all things Japanese. But as Gilbert told one inquiring journalist, I cannot give you a good reason for our piece being laid in Japan. It afforded scope for picturesque treatment, scenery and costume, and I think that the idea of a chief magistrate who is judge and actual executioner in one, and yet would not hurt a worm, may perhaps please the public. The executioner is, of course, Coco, who wants to marry the pretty Yum Yum, who is also his ward, who is in love with Nanki Poo, the son of the Mikado, who has run away to the town of Titipu. I was thinking, if you turn Titipu round, it's up it, up it. I wonder what that means. <laughs> in order not to have to marry Katisha, a woman of a certain age chosen for him by his father. As ever, everything is indeed upside down. This is topsy-turvy, this is the topsy-turvy world of Gilbert and Sullivan. Mikado is the ninth of 14 operatic collaborations between these two men. It opened on the 14th of March, 1885, in London, where it ran at the Savoy Theatre for 672 performances, which was the second longest run for any work of musical theatre at that time, and one of the longest runs of any theatre piece in the 19th century. Before the end of 1885, it was estimated that in Europe and America, at least 150 theatre companies were producing this work. 
Well, we have a quartet of guests tonight to tell us about making music here at the Colosseum and this particular production of The Mikado. Elaine Tyler-Hall, who has directed this revival of Jonathan Miller's original production of The Mikado. The tenor David Webb, a wandering minstrel he, who's covering the role of Nanki Poo and who's going to perform music from the opera in a while with Hannah Quinn, who is a new member of the music staff here at English National Opera. Our fourth guest tonight is Andrew Crowther. He's the secretary of the W.S. Gilbert Society and an author and a playwright. His biography of William Schwenk Gilbert has the splendid Gilbertian title of Gilbert of Gilbert and Sullivan. Will you please welcome Andrew Crowther? <laughs> Andrew, um, why do you think Gilbert set this opera in Japan? Well... As you say, it was it was kind of in the air. It, it was it tapped into that whole exoticism, uh, Orientalism that that, that was uh, beginning to be very attractive to British society at that time. It was kind of in reaction to the the austere early Victorian uh, style of black and austerity, uh, and. It was an exotic other. It was a, uh, it, it, it was a place that um, most people in Britain didn't know much about. So it, uh, Gilbert felt he could create his own fantasy world of Japan. <laughs> but it's really about England, isn't it? <laughs> yes and no. It's 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 a kind. It it's. Uh, what the, I, th I think it's a, what I th think of it is it's a kind of hallucinated version mm. of Britain. It um, it has all the characteristics of uh, of, uh, of British society except that it's in uh, exotic costumes and it's uh, it's in in a faraway land in beautiful landscapes. <laughs> uh, but if you just take away that little layer, <laughs> then things start to come through and you think, ah, yes. Uh, for instance, um, this whole idea of a law against flirting, uh, flirting being punishable by death, and, and, and you can see that that taps into that whole Victorian prudery, mm. that, uh, that fear of uh, uh, sexuality that, uh, that uh, well, you can see how that's that applies. I, I was reading a wonderful piece about a group of gentlemen who were deeply frowned upon by others used to hang around by the horse-drawn omnibuses waiting to watch an ankle as a girl stepped onto <laughs> the thing. I mean, this was the height of erotic design, Ooh, yes. but utterly <laughs> forbidden, I think. Absolutely, yes. But, but do you think Gilbert in particular is also satirising the extraordinary growth in those people who were responsible for public policy, <laughs> for public decisions. Yes. Know, this is the great age of the public commission into everything from Thames barriers to uh, sanitation. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, yes, and so, so of course we get Pooh Bar the Lord High Everything Else, the, uh, the, the, the great uh, sort of everything rolled into one uh, sort of bureaucratic figure. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and... That's one of the mainsprings of the plot, the idea that making an affidavit is, is, is the same as the, as the real thing. You know, sort of having a document to say something has happened 
is, is, is as good as it's actually having happened and, uh, and things like that. And it's... Yes. That makes me wonder whether the opera doesn't, however much we would wish it not to, really belong to Poobah uh, and to Coco. In the end, they are at the heart of this piece. In, in a sense, you could say, yes, cert certainly Coco, the, uh, the Lord High Executioner, he's, he's the, the, the mover and shaker, he's the, um, uh, the wily figure who's trying to keep hold of the plot and trying to bring, keep control and, and, essentially, uh, and, most importantly, trying to save his own skin, of course. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Uh, and if, you, if you look with a dramatist's eye at the plot of the Mikado, you could actually dispense with Poobah. Mm. You, you could actually, the plot could actually work perfectly well without him, mm. except that this marvellous comic creation mm. is... It, it, it's kind of inseparable <laughs> from, 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 the plot, from the Mikado, in a, in a sense, because Coco and Poobah become this marvellous double act, don't they? Mm. Um, but... The the one of the great marvels of the, of uh, of all the operas, uh, including the Mikado, is of course that they're ensemble pieces. They're not just about Coco or or Nankipu or Yum Yum. It's it's everything fits together so marvelously, and you know, it's about the ensemble really. I think. And um, what about Gilbert, Annie, Sullivan, uh, and their women? Um, you might want to say that these are pretty negative, particularly from the 21st century portraits. Mm. Um, you know, Yum Yum, frankly, is a bit of a selfish featherhead. Um, mm. and, and, and Katisha is mocked for her, her very age. Um, mm. I mean, what, yes. what do you feel about this? Well, it's, it, it's, I feel it is a problem, particularly with the uh, uh, Katisha figures, because there are a lot of jokes specifically about age and appearance and so on. I, 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 I might... Uh, sort of uh, have a little bit of an argument about yum-yum uh, uh, and the sort of uh, selfish featherhead mm. aspect because mm. you, you could equally say that uh, so some of the male characters, Coco, he's, uh, mm. he's utterly selfish and featherhead, well, you know, you could argue that way. And, mm. uh, but um, it, you'd, of course... Of course, these are Victorian pieces, and mm. and the what's uh, created is filtered through the brain of an unconventional Victorian, but a Victorian nonetheless. So you get these uh, archetypes, these stereotypes coming through, because well, you couldn't avoid it really, and uh, and a feminism hadn't been invented as a concept. Mm. Uh, or, well, the new woman is around. Uh, Shaw's new woman. Oh, uh, Mrs. Mrs. Bloomer's rational dress, <laughs> bicycling. I, I, I suppose, uh, yes. Uh, it's coming in in the next ten years or so, let's say, but yes. Do you hear uh, Japan itself written into the score? Uh, in one or two places, yes. Uh, of course, famously, there is an actual Japanese song, Miyasama, which is uh, quoted in Act Two. And... Um, uh, you, you would uh, probably need a Sullivan expert to, to answer the question in more detail, but uh, I believe some of the scales right at the beginning of, of the piece are, are, uh, are based on, uh, on the, the kind of Japanese musical scales. But, of course, uh, just as soon as you start getting this Japanese feel coming in, you suddenly get 
uh, sea shanties and uh, madrigals and and uh, music hall songs suddenly coming in. So it's it. it it's very no interesting. You probably yes. know this, but but Puccini had a copy of this score, extraordinarily yes. well thumbed, yes. in the library at Torre del Lago, mm. and clearly borrowed bits of it when he was writing <laughs> Madame Butterfly. Absolutely, yes. So, so I like this idea of the transmission of Japan in this kind of roundabout way musically. <laughs> it's extraordinary, isn't it? Yes, yes. Uh, you sort of wonder, did Puccini, was he taking this as an authentic representation mm. of Japan? Mm. And, uh, but, uh, yes, but, you do wonder. But presumably the roots are much more in what the Victorians had always loved, which was early 19th century opera buffa, Italian mm. comic opera. This is really where both of them start. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, uh, Gilbert in particular, he, he always had that love for uh, Donizetti and um, Meyerbeer, and I think Bellini as well. Uh, he, he, he was very much steeped in, in, that, in that kind of theatre. He, he loved theatre more than music, I think, but, uh, but he, 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 he was very familiar with those pieces, and uh, um, perhaps not even just the opera buffa, but the, the more serious operas when you get uh, sort of baby kidnappings and, uh, and all these plots, these outrageous melodramatic plots, which of course he turns on the head and, uh, and completely ridicules. <laughs> I wonder what you feel looking back now about this production when it first opened. This is one of the mm. first productions of Gilbert and Sullivan after copyrighted. Uh, expired, as I understand, that was able to take a fresh view about how mm. you might produce it. And what do you feel about the fact we now appear to have danced our way into a Fred Astaire and Junior Rogers <laughs> hotel somewhere in the 1930s? Of course, it's wonderful. You know, it, it's, 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 it's absolutely nothing to do with how Gilbert, the, who, of course, directed his own pieces originally, uh, how he would have conceived it. But what, what, what you do is you strip away all the um, the accretions uh, that have uh, attached themselves to the opera in the past century and uh, however many years and 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 also you take away all the irrelevant pieces which kind of can get in the way uh, particularly in this modern age where uh, the idea of uh, a western person representing a japanese person can look a little bit mm. suspect. So, so, so you bypass that whole controversy mm. by saying, well, everyone knows this about England anyway, so let's make it English. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and of course you have this wonderful style that comes from the 20s, 30s setting. Uh, I, th I think Jonathan Miller sort of uh, was specifically referencing uh, things like the Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers movies and uh, Marx Brothers and, and things like that, which of course have their marvellous um, fantasy style of their own. They, of course, those films have nothing to do with reality either. Mm. So, <laughs> so it becomes this, as I say, different but completely cons consonant fantasy world. What, what is remarkable about this production and indeed other productions of Gilbert and Sullivan, mm -hmm. um, one might think of uh, Paris of Penzance in the house uh, in, in, uh, last year, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, is that there is a huge audience for Gilbert and Sullivan. I mean, in a way, I suppose for many of us it's bred in the bone, but mm. I wonder what people come for now. Uh, do they come because the music is irrepressibly tuneful uh, and witty? Do they come because Gilbert writes lyrics like nobody's ever written lyrics until Stephen Sondheim, possibly? <laughs> or, or do they come because, in the end, these remain valid satires of the way the English always think they ought to do things? 
all three, obviously. <laughs> it's it, it's all those things. Uh, uh, in 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 the sort of the little world of Gilbert and Sullivan, uh, you you get occasionally these uh, little arguments about what is what is the attraction? Is it Sullivan? You'll get some people saying it's all about Sullivan's music. You'll get some people saying it's all about Gilbert's words. Mm. But of course, that's ridiculous because <laughs> it's it, because what. What is the joy of these things? Is the way the words and the music fit together, how they spark off each other and create something new, mm. and it's the, the, there is a little bit of the creative conflict as well because uh, I, I love Gilbert's works. He, he he wrote many many dozens of plays which are hardly ever performed these days and. Uh, uh, many of them I love. Some, some I think, mm, okay. But, but even the best of his works, they have, they, they can be a little bit overpowering in how, how in their bitter mm. comedy. And Sullivan provides that leaven, mm. and and makes and, and makes makes it accessible to all. And similarly, Sullivan wonderful, wonderful composer, and with a marvelous command of orchestration and uh, this flowing melody and so on. But he was a very conventional Victorian in the end, and this is my personal view, uh, others may disagree, but my, my personal view is that uh, he needed that bite mm. that uh, Gilbert provided to, uh, to take him out of that Comfortable Victorian atmosphere, and to create to create things which also have accessibility to our more acerbic view of life today. Anyone who sat through Ivanhoe would probably agree. With you, <laughs> I think. Andrew Crowther, thank you very much. Stay with us, please. Yes. Um, ladies and gentlemen, we're joined now by the tenor David Webb, who's covering the role of Nanki Poo, and who's going to perform music from the opera in a while. And with him, Hannah Quinn, who is a member of the English National Opera Music Self. Will you welcome uh, David and Hannah? <laughs> David, a quick thumbnail sketch. Who is Nanki Poo? How do you see this character? Uh, Hello, everyone. Uh, Nanki Poo is um, the heir to the throne of Japan, and uh, he is—he's a prince. He's—he's he's a, hes a joy to play. He's a joy to watch on stage, and he's—he's um, he's intelligent. He's bright, and he's—he's he's got a very good heart. There's, prob there's probably no real malice to him. In fact, you'll, as you know, there's, there, there are there are brilliant lines in in the in the dialogue where, you know, he's just been told. You know that he's going to lose his head in a month, and uh, sorry if I'm ruining this for anyone. Uh, and uh, and uh, sorry about that. That's spoiler alert. Uh, and uh, and you know he's very kind of gracious about it, which is hilarious, obviously given the situation. And what does he really feel about Yum Yum? Uh, he's besotted with her. He's he's absolutely you know he would do anything for her. Quite evidently, he would do anything for her. And and he's quite clearly the classic son of a Victorian paterfamilias, terrified of his father. Well, I, I, that's not something I ever thought about when, when doing, when covering. Um, I'm not sure, that there's no real moment in the production where he, there's any words of kind of spite towards him or any, any fear really when he talks, I mean, he speaks about him 
with, with regards to Katashir and why he fled the court, but there's never anything that really says, you know, if, especially when, you know, again, I don't want to give a spoiler alert, but, at, you know, towards the end, when, when he sees him, that there's no, there's no fear. That's very much a kind of, it's good to have you back, you know, I hope you understand. <laughs> you know, is my idea. <laughs> Sorry about that. The Freudian Oedipal <laughs> complex at the heart of this piece. Um, I wonder how much how much room does Gilbert and Sullivan, or more importantly, how much room do the traditions under which these operas operettas have been produced before leave you, the singer, to make something of the character? Um, well, obviously, the the text and the music, as Andrew said, are so beautifully put together that you don't really have to do much with it, as with any. Um, great piece of opera it's it's in the score for you so as long as you kind of adhere, adhere to what's been asked of you um the character comes out of out of that which is great obviously you know as a as an artist and as someone on stage you want to put your own you know slant on it and that's when elaine will tell us that you're wrong or or, or, <laughs> or, or, or that's a good idea go with that dave that's great yeah but do you feel the weight of of, of a tradition of doing these pieces in a particular way in any way no, I don't feel any weight at all. I don't think anyone in the cast does. And I think in, in some ways it's, it's great because obviously it's been going, especially this production, which is an incredible production, has been going for so long. If there was weight on us, no one would want to do it. But the fact that it's carrying on and carrying on and carrying on shows just how, mm. you know, how wonderful the piece is and how wonderful it is to perform as well. And are Gilbert's lyrics a help? Yes. Use? Yes, although I heard a, I heard a story about... You might be able to tell me about this. Apparently, um, he used to get upset with singers who didn't learn their lines properly. So he would change things round. He, he would have a phrase that would be a, a very, something like "down the window from the ladders" or something. Not that, but it, he would change it to "from the window down the, from the window down the ladders" at different points to just just to make sure that the singers. Is that right? Uh, I, I I haven't heard that before. Okay. I, I, I don't think we can prove that. But no, uh, that's true. He's definitely very keen on. Exactly. Yes. So, uh, yeah, that's that's what I would say. I mean, he's, it's it's always it's when you're singing, and even with the dialogue as well. It's it's so well written that it helps you. I'll probably forget a word now, but you know what I mean. <laughs> and what are the vocal challenges? What does Solomon pose as a as a challenge? Well, for for Nanki Poo, it's it's very it's a very lovely sing. It doesn't it doesn't it doesn't go too high. Um, if, if anything, the, probably the biggest struggle is that there are moments where it's quite low in the voice for a tenor, which is quite hard, and obviously the orchestration is quite thick at certain points. But um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a gift of a role, really, Nanki Poo. Okay, what are you going to do for us now? I'm going to sing the opening, well, his only aria, A Wandering <laughs> Minstrel. Uh, um, there are bits which where you would have, I've seen, I think you've seen from the uh, beautiful pictures, uh, behind me either you'd have some sailors or we'd have some... Uh, some other some, some some of the guys from the chorus singing along. So there will be a few moments where it looks like nothing's happening, but that's because they would be behind me on stage doing stuff. So I will try and dance for you, or try and. <laughs> in fact, that's probably the hardest thing that we had to do in this in this is the dance, singing and stuff, and it's great and I love it. But when you have to sing and dance at the same time, it's like doing the old rubbing your head at the same time. Great, thank you very much. Changing. 
is wanted by patriotic ballads cut and dried for whenever a country's banner may be planted on other local manners are defied our warriors in serried ranks assembled never quake or they conceal it if they do and they shouldn't be surprised if nations tremble before the mighty troops the troops of Damien Hannah, thank you both very much indeed. Um, Marvellous solo dancing, I can think of new production. <laughs> um, Hannah, can I ask you, is this the first time you've worked on the Mikado? In its entirety, yes, with various singers. We've done little bits of it, the odd ARIO song, but um, yeah, as, a, as a, an entire piece, yeah, it's the first time. And what's been your response as you've been working on the whole piece? What have you come to think? It's, it's just a glorious, wonderful piece of work. You know, the, the detail in all the characters is is fantastic. You know, each each of the main characters has a, a, an aria or a song which is so perfectly pitched to their um, quirks and their 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 nature. You know, and and then these wonderful ensemble pieces as well, which are which range from which have such heart and range from great joy and enthusiasm to you know to things that are more difficult to deal with 
It's the sheer variety, isn't it, to really? Sullivan's music? Yeah. You know, everything, yeah. as we were hearing from a madrigal, sea shanty. Yeah. Um, and just listening to that, you know, the opening aria for... for, 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 for now, the sheer range of styles you run through one piece. Yeah, absolutely. It starts off in quite the, you know, a, a gentle lyrical song, and then um, you have uh, this sort of uh, sea shanty hoedown um, section in the middle where the, where the guys of the chorus, the gentlemen of the chorus and the dancers join in. Um, but, yeah, it's, and it's just a really wonderful piece for Nanki Poo. It really displays his character. Are, are the individual numbers and the ensembles self-contained, or does Sullivan sort of, in a way, through compose in this piece? Are there, are there ways in which we're reminded as we listen to the score of things that have happened or things that are anticipated? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, he's, it's really carefully uh, crafted. You know, at the, at the beginning, the very first scene is um, with, with the gentlemen of the chorus, kind of, they set the scene, then we see Nanki Poo and he sings to us, and um, then the other main characters, Pishtush and Poobah, kind of present themselves, and we get a good sense of who these, who we're dealing with in the story, and and what their objectives and their agendas are. And and then and then it's broken up. We we see the women. The women are introduced firstly by the chorus, and then the girls sort of run on and in their giddy kind of schoolgirl state. But you know. Uh, you know, it might, that might seem kind of stereotypical, but there, there's also more serious moments for the girls too. And, and do you hear, to ask the question of you, do you hear traditional Japanese music running through the school? Um, I think he just um, obviously quotes things. You know, there's the begin, the, the bit at the beginning, which is just you know reminding us that we're in Japan, and then the entrance of the Mikado. It's just a blatant quote, you know. He just, uh, you know, there's no kind of he's unashamedly just just stealing things. But it's very, it's very British. It's very English. It's very of its time, and it's very, it's very them. You know, it's completely unique to their their writing. Anna, thank you very much indeed. Ladies <laughs> and gentlemen, our final guest is Elaine Tyler Hall, who has been responsible for the revival of this production of the Mikado. Will you please welcome <laughs> Elaine. <laughs> Elaine, not wishing to be ungallant, but can you remember the first time you saw this production? Well, it's not really a case of seeing it, I'm afraid, because um, I first was introduced to this production in 1988, um, and I was a dancer in the production then, and that was my first time I worked here at ENO, and I'm still here, however many years later that is. Um, so I suppose I saw it from the other side, first of all. Um, what did it feel like seeing it as part of the company? Oh, it's such fun, such fun. It's been the happiest show I, I've almost ever worked on. From the first day I walked through the door here, um, lovely casts, really, really great time. And I think um, in some ways it kind of reflects the, the character of ENO itself, that, that it's just the happiest show that everybody loves. And, and we're always delighted to come bring it back. And what did you, what did you think about originally, what do you think now about taking the show and putting it into this imaginary 1930s grand hotel? Jonathan Miller is just a genius at finding uh, a way of producing a piece, not changing it, not making it different, but 
giving you a new perspective on it. He has this really great big idea of, of how he wants to produce a piece. And Mikado is absolutely typical of those things. And, you know, he's got this huge love of the Marx Brothers. He thinks, you know, he just loves them, uh, loves their movies. And there's quite a few quotes from their movies in, in this piece. Um, and so I think it's brilliant. I think it's absolutely brilliant. You know, and I think it's partly the reason it's survived for very nearly 30 years, um, is that it's not, it, it, it's, it's such a secure and, and specific idea that it doesn't date and it doesn't feel tired. I, I, I can see the Marx Brothers and, and Margaret Dumont above all. Yes. But until Andrew talked, I hadn't thought quite as carefully about how that other great fantasy uh, uh, couple, Rogers and Astaire, are here in the show too. They are. Because um, I, I, I wasn't around the first time, I'm not quite sure how they made the decision of having the dancers in, in this show. Um, but uh, it is a genius because the, the dancers pick up on this sort of Busby Barkley flavour that you get from those Hollywood movies of the 30s and, and injects a huge amount of energy into the piece. And the wonderful choreographer who choreographed it originally, um, Anthony Van Last, did it. And I think it, it really kind of is the icing on the cake. It, it just really finishes off the piece. But there's also something else about a hotel. Um, hotels are places where you can be whoever you want to be. There's a wonderful joke about a hotel in Brighton, I better not name it, where it used to be said that if the messenger in the old days with a telegram or a letter went into the lounge and shouted, Mr and Mrs Smith, 42 couples. <laughs> but there is this sense in which the hotel offers you a space in which we can believe anything because anybody can believe anything about themselves. That's right. And it's, it's very interesting, isn't it? Always how you set any sort of opera, really. Uh, because opera, of course, is going to be moving between all sorts of different places. So to a certain extent, it has to be abstracted, but it also has to be quite specific. So how genius it is to have a hotel setting where it can be, as you say, anything. It can, it can be a, a place for flirtation. It can be a place for execution. It can be anything. So that's, it, it makes it an exciting venue. What do you, is your principal task as someone who is reviving somebody else's production? What, what are the kind of rules? Oh, I suppose everybody has different rules. Um, I think that for me, how to revive a piece is really important that it doesn't become mine. It's not my piece, it's, it's Jonathan's. It's his production, and I have to be as faithful to his intention as I possibly can be. Um, and that's why it's a great piece. So if I start trying to make it mine, th then it stops being what it is. So first and foremost, I think I, I have to go back to what I think the original intentions of of Jonathan's original intentions were. And because I work with him quite a lot and I know him quite well, you know, I know his stylistic, what he likes, what he doesn't like. And also being in it all those years ago, I, I also sort of learned a lot then. Um, so I suppose I, I want to be really faithful to it, but make it as good as I possibly can. And because I have a new cast every time I do a revival, uh, then it's new for them. It's no point in just making it whatever it was before, you know, there is that dreaded word, revival, which makes, makes it sound like you're digging something up that's dead. Um, and it's not that at all. It, it, it's, it's, 
it's absolutely alive and has new life each time you do it has a new set of people and they bring a new life to it so it's not going to be exactly the same every time because you know people like david come in and and they have just a new energy and it's not that they're going to be doing something particularly differently but it it does have a life of its own and and grows i hope every time that we do it is it more difficult to revive a piece that's become deeply loved by lots of people. I don't know how many people this is true of here, but I think I've seen it every time it's been revived this <laughs> show. There must be lots of us <laughs> who've done that. And I wonder if it's harder for you. Um, I don't know about harder. The, 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 what's easy in some ways about this piece is it's so specific. You know, stylistically, it's so specific um, and it has a very clean structure. So you can't, there isn't a lot of room to mess about with it. Um, but it is difficult because people do love it, and it is important. It's a really important piece, I think, in the in the history of certainly of this company and in the way that Gilbert and Sullivan is done now. So I I care deeply about it, and I care deeply that I I do it well. Um, the the chorus some of them who have been in it from the beginning, like me, and they will sidle up to me in a rehearsal and say. Thing. Do you remember we used to do it like this? And I say, oh yes, we did. And we say yes. And so, so you know, sometimes their memories play tricks on them. And sometimes I absolutely am thrilled that they say things. And sometimes I think, well, they're trying to slip one in here that I'm not sure is quite right. Um, but yes, people will come and tell me if I'm not doing it right, for sure. As you talk, I get the sense of fine-tuning rather than changing. But were there some changes this time? Things that you wanted to, you perhaps had a go earlier and felt you could have another go at? because this has been fine-tuned over the years so much, I think that, that it's not a question of changing, but it's a question of working with a new cast, a new group of people who, you know, you want them to do their very best. And if something is not quite right for them, um, I will change it enough for them to love it and feel like it's their own. So I think change is possibly not quite the right word. I'm always very aware of this idea of, of, of making sure that the cast always feel like it is their own. It belongs to them. It doesn't belong to somebody who did it 20 years ago. It belongs to them, and they're on, on the stage now, and they are creating this world for you as an audience. Um, and so that is absolutely my priority, I think, to, to make that life come back to so, so you don't encourage a new cast, for example, to talk with those who worked with the show before? I mean, it's not like, for example, dancers teaching the next generation of dancers how they did a role? Um, I, I think it, it does get passed on, of course. You know, we're, it's a small world and people talk to each other. So there, there is that sense of it. It's, um, it's, a, it's a very difficult one to pin down as a, as a precise thing, because it... it is quite choreographed in a way, so because it's quite specific about the way it's staged, the way it's blocked on the stage, um, and because because that is really secure, um, it doesn't change very much. So that idea of geography on the stage is not has not changed a huge amount over the nearly thirty years we've been doing it. But what that does for a performer is to free them up to be able to put their own personality into it within a really strong structure 
Did you, did, do you think you've yeah. had that feeling on the show? Absolutely. Yeah, good. Uh, I suppose a last thought would be this really was the production that uh, initially made us understand that you could do Gilbert and Sullivan beyond the way we'd always seen it and done it. And, and in a sense, brought something entirely fresh. Um, that must be quite a challenge to make sure we still feel that if we've never seen this when we leave the theatre. Yes, I hope that you think we've been successful <laughs> this evening. Um, it is a challenge. It is a challenge, and I, and I think it's, it is to do with the, the performers on the stage, because the set is brilliant. Stefan Lazaridis' set, absolutely brilliant set, that has life and structure of its own, and then adding on to that the, the, the verve that, that a, you know, a really good cast can do because they're confident in what they do, because they understand their characters. And of course, you know, it's not just recreating what was there before, but they have to discover their characters. They have to discover who these people are. And by doing that, it then, I hope, has a new fresh life. Elaine, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a little time before we're uh, invited to leave. If you'd like to ask a question of any of our guests, there's a, a microphone about to rove, and there's a first question leaping in over there. One thing that does change with every revival is a little list. Yes. And uh, we're all <laughs> looking forward to the contents of that list every time we come. Who, who, is, who are the unsung heroes that write that? Richard book? writes that himself. And has done always. Who? Um, Richard Stewart, who plays <coughs> who oh, plays Richard, Coco, he, he, he writes he writes his own lists, brilliant. and uh, and always does, and they are always brilliant. Yeah. They always are. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> Do we have another question for anybody? Yes, over here. Just a matter of curiosity on my part. Um, how much is uh, an original production recorded on paper? Uh, we have staff directors here who write everything down in a staff director's book that has all the moves and all the intentions of, of all the moves within that book. Um, so we have that recording and we also have a video recording of each revival so that that is not for public um, use but it's for our own uh, use to remember how things looked or what we did last time. So that the, you know, it's all recorded very carefully. Another question. Is it a fact that Gilbert wanted to leave out the Mikado song originally? It is a fact, <laughs> yes, absolutely. It, um, if you've seen the film Topsy Turvy, yeah. Mike Lee's film, it, it, that is a fairly accurate representation of what actually happened. Um, it, I, th I think that what was in Gilbert's mind was that we have a... Uh, in Act One, we have a, a Coco song about uh, about all the punishments he would uh, give to people he doesn't like. And then in Act Two, we have the Mikado singing a song about all the punishments he would uh, give to people he doesn't like. So it's, it's so I, I think that quite a late stage, he suddenly thought to himself, "Hang on, <laughs> there's I'm repeating the joke here." But uh, as we know, uh, the, the the chorus. The chorus of the doily cart, in particular, uh, went, uh, didn't want, it, want the, the song to go, so they went to Gilbert and said, keep it in, please. And he said, all right then. <laughs> it's just a, a wonderful story, and it's true. <laughs> We've time for one more question. Does anyone? Yes, 